Zoheb here. So this is going to be something a bit different for the podcast. Before I get started, let me explain what this is about. So if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you'd know that I personally have a deep fascination with all things criminal law and true crime. I love listening to true crime, I love watching true crime, and at this point in my young career, I hope to one day end up working in the field of criminal law. So, naturally I listen to podcasts about true crime. Much like entertainment podcasts like ours, throw a rock and you'll hit a true crime podcast. That being said, I've never heard a true crime podcast quite like the Case File podcast. I think they do such a good job in their research of the cases and the delivery style of the stories are just so insanely well done. To give you some context, Case Files select a crime and cover the crime on their podcast week by week, with a different crime each week. Recently, Case File put out an advertisement saying that they were looking for a writer to join their writing team. As a person who enjoys writing and has a vested interest in the subject matter, I thought, hey, why not throw my head in the ring? What do I have to lose? So I emailed Casefile and they emailed me back saying that they would like candidates to submit a short script on a particular crime that they haven't yet covered. So I wrote one. I wrote a script. Now, writing a script takes time and effort, especially a script that's based in reality. You need to research and you need to make sure the sources that you're using are credible. Casefile has thousands of listeners and I consider myself an okay writer. Therefore, I probably won't end up getting the job. But I didn't want this script to go to waste and then I remembered, hey, I'm part of a podcast. Um, I did wrestle for some time about whether I should read this script on the podcast or not. The nature and tone of the script is so wildly different to what we're used to have, what we're used to producing on the show. In the end, though, after consulting Colin and Matt, I decided to go ahead with it. The script is focused around an event that hits very close to home for me. Um, if we need to find somewhat of a, of a reason to, to, I guess, link it to the show, I guess you could say that the event sent ripples throughout the entertainment industry, uh, making it somewhat relevant to the podcast. Also, at Midnight Double Feature, whilst we love sticking to our routine of delivering movie news and covering movies that we've, we're definitely interested in talking about scene by scene, we also like the idea of bringing something different to the table from time to time. By now, you've probably already guessed what the case is about. Yes, the case is about the 2012 Aurora, Colorado shooting. Before I go on, I'd like to address why I chose this particular crime. I'm always reminded by my friends and family that I spend more time in a movie theatre more than any other person they've ever met. I love the movies. I live and breathe movies. I love the majesty of it all. I worked in a movie theatre for nearly five years. These years shaped me and helped me become who I am today. I even went to a midnight screening of The Dark Knight Rises. I remember being absolutely stoked to see the movie, which at the time was a sequel to my favourite movie of all time. So when I heard about this crime, it absolutely shook me to my core and I just couldn't make sense of it. Turning back to this episode, before I go ahead and read the script, I wanted to let you guys know that I tried to be as respectful as possible to the victims and their families. This is a heavy episode with heavy content. If you're easily put off by content like this, then I suggest turning back now. There will be no jokes, no tongue-in-cheek references, no sexual innuendos that the show has come to be known for. Also, as I've talked about previously, and for obvious reasons, this episode of the podcast will be scripted. This is a story that I've felt needs to be told and absolutely remains, remains close to my heart. 
If you're still here, thank you for listening, and I would appreciate any feedback that you may have. If you have anything to say about this episode, whether it be positive or negative, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing midnightdoublefeature at gmail.com or by sending us a message via our social media pages. Thanks again, guys, and um, I, I do hope you enjoy listening to this. It is something very, very different than what you're used to listening to on our feed. Um, so just a word of warning. Um this is this is not this is not easy to read and it's probably not easy to hear James Egan Holmes was born on December 13, 1987 in San Diego, California. For the purposes of this podcast, we will refer to him by his name once, out of respect for the victims and their families. There was a movement led by the families of the victims shortly following the tragic morning that urged the media not to show his photo or say his name so as not to propagate his notoriety. This movement came to be known as the No Notoriety Campaign and was led by the parents of victim Alexander Teeves. Living on a hilly street in Oak Hills, California, which mainly consisted of two-story houses close to Highway 56, the perpetrator was described as being a quiet, good-looking kid who was a brainiac from a church-going family. The community was idyllic, a place where kids would play sport, socialise and expect to go to college. The perpetrator's father was a mathematician and a scientist who held credentials from impressive institutions including Stanford University, UCLA and UC Berkeley. His mother was a registered nurse. Their son showed signs of following their footsteps. At his Oak Hill school, the perpetrator was part of a group of 14 or 15-year-old boys who was described as being quiet but active, taking part in football, baseball and street hockey. The perpetrator was a big fan of superheroes growing up, including DC Comics' Batman. Joseph Barrett, one of the boys from the group, says he was a nice kid, very fun to be around, a good friend. Joseph's mother Catherine describes a memory where the young boys went to a water park all together with the families. At the park, the perpetrator's younger sister was afraid to join the other kids on the on the bigger slides. Catherine remembers the perpetrators telling his sister that it would be alright and that he would stay with her and play with her in the splash park for younger kids. When he was 12 years old, the perpetrator moved back to San Diego, where he lived in the Rancho Penasquitos neighborhood. It is said that this move changed the perpetrator forever. Following the move, the perpetrator had difficulties making friends and, as a result, began to withdraw socially, often ending up in his room alone with his video games. His mother stated that he had, quote, lost his joy and that she felt guilty that she couldn't make him happy. The social awkwardness followed the perpetrator into his high school years. A cross-country coach at Westview High School noticed his withdrawn behaviour and stated later to the media that the perpetrator was, quote, he was of us and not of us. 
Early in his high school years, the perpetrator attempted suicide. According to the perpetrator, he was frightened of entities that he called, quote, nail ghosts, which would hammer on the walls at night and would materialize out of his bedroom walls. He later said he was seeing shadows, which he called, quote, flickers out of the corner of his eye. Eventually, the perpetrator completed an undergraduate degree in neuroscience with the highest honors at the University of California, Riverside. According to the University of California, Riverside, the perpetrator graduated in the top 1% of his class with a 3.949 grade point average, further describing him as, quote, a very effective group leader and a person who, quote, takes an active role in his education and brings a great amount of intellectual and emotional maturity into the classroom. In 2010, while the perpetrator was working at a pill and capsule coating factory in San Diego, a quality control technician described the perpetrator as being, quote, not social at all, saying that he never had lunch with the co-workers and chose to eat lunch alone in his car instead. The technician goes on to detail further instances such as when he opened the curtains, he saw the perpetrator, quote, staring at a wall, looking spaced out, and that he was taking notes, but kind of looking at the wall like someone was talking to him. In 2011, the perpetrator enrolled to obtain his PhD in neuroscience in the University of Colorado Entrance Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado. At this point, the perpetrator was living in a one-bedroom apartment on Paris Street in Aurora. Although he was offered a grant from the National Institutes of Health and a $5,000 stipend from the University of Colorado, the perpetrator declined the offers without ever specifying a reason. In 2012, the perpetrator's academic performance took a nosedive. By spring of 2012, the perpetrator was consistently receiving poor test scores and, as a result, dropped out of the course. On May 22, 2012, the perpetrator purchased a Glock 22 pistol at a Gander Mountain store in Aurora, Colorado. Six days following this, on May 28, 2012, the perpetrator purchased a Remington 870 Express tactical shotgun at a base pro shops in Denver. On June 7, 2012, immediately after failing a university examination, the perpetrator purchased a Smith & Wesson AR-15 rifle, gun slings and a gun case from a Gander Mountain store. It has been confirmed that these weapons were purchased legally and that the proper background checks complied with United States law. Between April 2012 and July 2012, the perpetrator had amassed 3,000 rounds of ammunition for the pistol, 3,000 rounds for the AR-15 and 350 shells for the shotgun. Further to this, on July 2, 2012, the perpetrator placed an order for a Black Hawk Urban Assault Vest, two extra magazine holders, a knife, tactical targets, target stands, a pistol holder, and a red laser light through an online store. Additionally, the perpetrator had purchased two 6-ounce tear gas grenades. On June 25th, the perpetrator sent an email application to join a gun club in Byers, Colorado. The owner of the club, Glenn Rotkovich, attempted to call the perpetrator back multiple times, but was unsuccessful. However, the perpetrator did respond to Rotkovich's calls by way of leaving a voicemail. 
Rotkovich described the perpetrator's voice as, quote, bizarre, freaky, guttural, spoken with a deep voice, incoherent and rambling, and further advised his staff that if the perpetrator showed up to the property, then they were to inform Rotkovich immediately. Later, Rotkovich would state, quote, In hindsight, maybe I'd say it was like the Joker. It was like somebody was trying to be as weird as possible. On June 29, the perpetrator visited Century 16 Multiplex, located in the town centre at Aurora Shopping Mall. On this date, he took photos of door latches, which were later found on his phone. On July 5th, the perpetrator created an online dating account on adultfriendfinder.com with a headline stating, Will you visit me in prison? On July 19th, mere hours before the commission of the crime, the perpetrator mailed a notebook to his psychiatrist detailing his thoughts and plans during the weeks before the crime took place. Immediately before committing the crime, the perpetrator called a crisis hotline for mental health with the hopes that someone would talk him out of committing the crime at the last minute. The call was disconnected after nine seconds. On the night of July 19, 2012, the Century 16 Theatre was holding a midnight screening of Christopher Nolan's highly anticipated conclusion to his Batman trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises. The midnight screening was being held in Theatre 9, which was a sold-out session comprising of nearly 400 people. At 12.03am, July 20, 2012, the perpetrator scans the online movie ticket on his phone and walks over to the concession stand, where a witness later described him standing there for several minutes before walking off towards Theatre 9. At 12.20am, a witness sitting in the front row observed a man in a black hat who was sitting in the front row take a phone call and walk towards the emergency exit, propping it open with his foot. 18 minutes later, at 12.38am, the perpetrator re-enters the theatre through the emergency exit. However, this time the perpetrator was wearing black ballistic gear. According to the police, the perpetrator was also listening to techno music through his headphones in order to avoid listening to the theatre's reactions. The perpetrator threw two canisters of tear gas into the audience and began firing one of the three guns on his persons. Initially, many people in the audience believed the perpetrator was an elaborate cosplay, an actor hired by the studio or the theatre in the hopes that the effect of the movie could be made more real. Others believed that he was playing a prank. Notably, the perpetrator fired initially on the people at the back of the theatre, which further strengthens the argument that the perpetrator was somewhat nervous about establishing a connection with his victims. After 90 seconds of shooting, the perpetrator had fired 76 shots in Theatre 9, 6 from the shotgun, 65 from the AR-15 and 5 from the 40 calibre handgun. The first calls to emergency services were made at approximately 12.39am. The police arrived within 90 seconds. Emergency services described the chaos that ensued following their arrival. Ambulances were unable to reach the front doors of the complex due to congestion and chaos. At this point, the police had begun sending victims to local hospitals in their squad cars. Around 12.45am at the back of the complex, police officer Jason Oviet handcuffed the perpetrator behind his back. Officer Oviet had found the perpetrator next to his car, surrendering without resistance. During the arrest, the perpetrator was described as being calm and, quote, 
disconnected by police. Inside the car, officers found another handgun, spike strips and a first aid kit. Following his apprehension, the perpetrator told police that he had booby-trapped his apartment before leaving for the theatre. As a result, police ordered an evacuation of the apartment complex and located an explosive device that was wired to the apartment's front door. Inside the apartment, the police found over 30 homemade grenades wired to a control box in the kitchen filled with at least 110 litres of fuel. On the morning of July 20, 2012, the perpetrator had murdered 12 people and injured 70 innocent, unsuspecting people who thought they were, they were going to be treated to a superhero movie. On July 30, 2012, Colorado prosecutors laid formal charges against the perpetrator. The counts included 24 counts of first-degree murder, 116 counts of attempted first-degree murder, and one count of illegal possession of explosives. On August 9, the perpetrator's defense attorney said that he was mentally ill and needed time to assess the nature of the illness. On January 7, 2013, it was held by the court that there was sufficient evidence for the trial to proceed. On 27th of March 2013, the perpetrator offered a guilty plea in exchange for prosecutors not seeking the death penalty. However, the prosecution declined the offer. The trial began on April 27, 2015. Over three months, the jury would hear the cases of the defense and prosecution. Evidence included the notebooks sent by the perpetrator to a psychologist, evidence on the perpetrator's computers, and all evidence found by the police. The perpetrator chose not to testify in the proceedings. On July 16, 2015... After deliberating for over 12 hours, the jurors found the perpetrator guilty on all 24 counts of the first-degree murder, 140 counts of attempted first-degree murder, one count of possessing explosives, and a sentence enhancement of a crime of violence. On 26th of August 2015, the court formally sentenced the perpetrator to 12 life sentences without the possibility of parole for the murder charges and an additional 3,318 years for the attempted murder and explosive possession charges. Arafo County District Court Judge Carlos Samoa, who handed down the sentence, stated for the record that it was the, quote, intention of the court that the defendant never sets foot in free society again and that the defendant deserves no sympathy. The perpetrator is currently incarcerated at USP Allenwood in Gregg Township, Union County, Pennsylvania. The shooting had a profound effect on the entertainment industry. Warner Brothers, the distributor of The Dark Knight Rises, cancelled the premiere of the movie in France, Mexico and Japan, cancelled some television television advertisements and and decided to delay box office results. Additionally, Warner Brothers immediately cancelled trailers for the upcoming Gangster Squad, which featured a scene where a shooting takes place in a theatre. Gangster Squad was also heavily edited as a result of the shooting. Christian Bale, who plays Batman in the film, visited victims privately on July 24, 2012. Hans Zimmer, composer of the soundtrack for the film, recorded a song titled Aurora for the soundtrack, selling the song and providing the proceeds to fund supporting the victims. You're hearing Hans Zimmer Aurora right now.
director Christopher Nolan spoke on behalf of the cast and crew of the film. Quote, Speaking on behalf of the cast and crew of The Dark Knight Rises, I would like to express our profound sorrow at the senseless tragedy that has befallen the entire Aurora community. I would not presume to know anything about the victims of the shooting, but that they were there last night to watch a movie. I believe movies are one of the great American art forms and the shared experience of watching a story unfold on screen is an important and joyful pastime. The movie theatre is my home, and the idea that someone would violate that innocent and hopeful place in such an unbearably savage way is devastating to me. Nothing any of us can say could ever adequately express our feelings for the innocent victims of this appalling crime, but our thoughts are with them and their families. Written by Zohab Ali. Thank you for listening.